I am so, so privileged um, to be able to minister to such a gathering of people, the Word of God, to be in front of such a number of people who, who expect Christ to speak to them by the Holy Spirit through the Scriptures. It is such a privilege. I, I also want to say my thanks, not just for the invitation, but my thanksgiving to God that he has given me the physical and emotional strength to be here. You realize something of my medical record. I collect ologists. There is hardly a part of my anatomy that doesn't have an ologist. I want to tell you folks. Because of, because of the tumor in my brain, I have a neurologist. And because I can hardly see with one eye, of an ophthalmologist, and I have only one ear that works, so that's an audiologist. Um, you know, because I, I had my, my carotid artery spontaneously dissected in Australia, and I have stents in my heart, of course I have a cardiologist. I have prostate problems, so I have a urologist. And this year, woohoo, I got a neurologist. An otolaryngologist. Woohoo! Not many people have those. Those are for sinus problems, folks. You see, what I'm describing to you is, is in terms of the Apostle Paul, a tent that is giving way. And we're all in the same place, I want to tell you. We're just at different stages. My expectation and my longing, of course, one day is to have a new body. That's what I've been promised. My only prayer is that it doesn't come in a flat pack. <laughs> Even driving on the M50 past Ikea gives me palpitations. I cannot cope with those things. An elderly lady wrote this prayer, and it was found in her journal after she had died. And it is this, Lord, I, I heard the doctor tell my daughter it's hospice time. So, before my mind gets dopey, I must consider my death. Not who gets the silverware, but what happens to me. Is it, is it too much, Jesus, to be resurrected to be about 25? Firm-bodied, not flabby, hunched, and cancer-scarred. And when I die, will John hold me in his arms again and say, Sweetheart, you are so beautiful. Am I just a foolish old woman to expect this? By the way, Lord, I don't need a mansion, but a flower garden would be nice. Thanks. We have vague expectations of our future of life after death. Even those of us who believe struggle, what's going to happen to us? We have images of heaven often based because we've been to the Sistine Chapel of medieval pictures of heaven and hell. Or, or because of our evangelical gospel upbringing, we've been singing hymns like, I'll fly away, old glory, or this world is not my home, I'm just a passing through, or I've got a home in glory land that outshines the sun. Or perhaps even through popular culture, where we reckon heaven will be endless golf, or ceaseless supplies of chocolate, or forever lying on a sun-kissed island with palm trees. That's why a particular dessert is described by food, critic, food critics as heavenly, or a heavenly destination is 
paradise. Now, I know we have these strange notions that somehow we'll go to a gate and Peter will be standing there and, and he'll hand us a harp and we'll have to listen to Muzak endlessly with the occasional outburst of the Hallelujah Chorus and we'll be eating Philadelphia cheese. Do you remember that advert? <laughs> well... <laughs> You know, I've I've conducted enough funerals in my time to know that even among those who are the most hardened, there is a longing for something more. As C.S. Lewis put it, we need to go home. There are better things ahead than any we leave behind. That's, That's deep within us. I know in this secular society where people imagine that the when you're dead, you're dead, you know, that... Nothing matters. There is no future. There is no life after death. And that those of us who believe are escapists, well, is it escapist for an unborn baby to wonder about life after birth? Is it escapist for a shipwrecked sailor on a raft to dream of landfall? Is it escapist for the seed to dream of the flower? For the caterpillar to dream of being a butterfly, or Juliet to dream of Romeo. No, this is basic to who we are. We have been created to love and to be loved, and our longings to love and express that love have never fully been satisfied. My concern in dealing with this subject this evening, in terms of the remit that I have been given, is what you hope for, what you are longing for, how you describe that future destiny will determine how you live today. I was raised, I must tell you, in the tradition that things were getting worse. And they would get worser and worser. Isn't that a wonderful Ulster phrase? And the worser they got, the better it was. Because the wars and rumors and wars, the pestilences and the tsunamis, the civil conflict that was taking place in the nations, uh, the, the, the terrorist uprisings that we see described in our screens are all the signs of the times, and the worse it got, the better it was going to be because Armageddon was near and Jesus was about to return. If that's your hope it will profoundly affect how you engage in ministry in this world. Or what if you reckon that the world is not our home, that heaven alone is our destiny, and ultimately the earth will be destroyed by fire and something radically and totally different is before us? Well, why would you worry about global warming and the environment falling apart and ecological catastrophe. What I'm saying to you tonight is what we are hoping for, what we are expecting, what is before us will determine how we're going to live today. Now, I'm not going to this evening delve into all the issues of the second advent or of resurrection or of the final judgment, but I want to look clearly, based upon a passage of Scripture, of what our final resting place is, where our final home is to be found where we are going if we are the people of God, if we are citizens of Christ's kingdom. I want you to turn to Revelation chapter 21. I'm actually going to preach on Revelation chapter 21 and 22 verses 1 to 5. 
But I'm not going to read all of it. I just want to read the perhaps most familiar section, which is Revelation chapter 1, verses 1 to 5. And this is the vision that John has. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Now the dwelling of God is with men, and he will live with them. They will be his people. And God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. For the old order of things has passed away. This is from the book of the Revelation, one of the most difficult books, I suppose, in the entire Bible. The great John Calvin wrote commentaries on every book of the Bible except the book of the Revelation to St. John the Divine, possibly because he didn't quite grasp it or understand it. This book, as you might imagine, is full of pictures and of symbols. It would be crazy for anyone to seek to read it or interpret it in a wooden and literal fashion. What I'm going to do tonight, and this is what we do when we enter into the book of Revelation, is to be brought into something akin to an art gallery where we see images and pictures and metaphors. Now, I, I say to you, don't be afraid of this. Don't be afraid of, of thinking pictorially. Jesus did this all the time. That's why we refer to him as the Lamb of God or the Lion of Judah. He said he was a door. He said he was a shepherd. It's, it's pictorial language. Scientists use it, of course, when they talk about wave theory or particle theory. Those are pictures. Those are metaphors. When you come to the Apostle Paul, who's looked upon, especially when you read his letter to the Romans or Galatians, as this great heavy theologian who only speaks in propositions, not so. Ken Bailey, who is a great New Testament scholar, and his great perspectives was reading and understanding Jesus and Paul from Middle Eastern through Middle Eastern eyes, he reckons that Paul, above all else, was a metaphorical theologian. That the major thrust and emphasis of what he wrote were were the use of images like body and army and family. You see, it is an effective way of communicating truth, not simply in propositional form, but in pictures, in metaphorical language. I was saying the other day, I've been married to Karis, who's here tonight, so I have to be careful what I say because she wasn't here the last time, that we've been married for 45 years, okay? Now, I could say, I could say to you, you know, my love is five foot five, she weighs 130 pounds and has body parts that are not only intact, but are quite symmetrical. Uh, She's not too impressed by that, I want to tell you. But what have I said to you? My love is like a red, red rose that's newly sprung in June. Oh, my love's like the melody that's sweetly played in tune. Thank you, Robbie Burns. That is so much more 
That is so much more impressive. It communicates the truth. Well, in Revelation chapter 21, let me take you through some of these pictures or images. Here is the first one. I know that many of you, when you think of the future life, you just speak of going to heaven. And what you mean by that, it's in a general or generic, generic term of everything that is before you. Everything that you're expecting, the presence of God, a, a new sense of peace, a new body, the resurrected body like Christ's glorified body. But let me remind you that heaven is the dwelling place of God. And when we die, sure, we are absent from the body and we are present from the Lord. We know only too well that in heaven there has been prepared for us something that is indescribable, that is indestructible. It's kept in heaven for us. But here is the problem. Much of our thinking, much of our thinking in the church for centuries has been more influenced by a Greek philosopher called Plato from the 4th and 5th centuries before Christ than the actual teaching of the scriptures. When we think of what's going to happen to us in the future, we reckon in utterly immaterial terms. We speak in spiritual terms. We reckon that the most important part of us is our souls. And somehow God has given to us a body to help us function, but really... It's our souls that really matter. That is the total inversion of how we have been created in terms of the Genesis narrative. God stretched down into the dust of the earth and he began to put together like a mud pie and began to mold and create out of which a body, a body with, with muscles and sinews and blood and flesh and tissues began to emerge. And then he breathed life into the body. You see, the body and the spirit are utterly inseparable in terms of who we are as those made by God in the divine image. When you, as you've sung at parties, John Brown's body lies a-moldering in the grave. John Brown's body lies a-moldering in the grave. And his soul goes marching on. That is pure Plato. That is not the teaching of Scripture. It has so affected us, this Platonic Greek influence, that even as evangelicals, we have somehow condensed and squeezed the scriptures. We almost ignore Genesis 1 and 2, except when it comes to the issue of evolution. We forget about, we forget about Revelation uh, 21 and 22, and, and we think first and foremost about the fall. Because of the sinful disobedience, our souls are in danger. There is a possibility of heaven or hell for our souls. And, of course, our Bibles conclude with the final judgment. Where where will our souls find their destiny? Well, if you turn to Revelation 21, you cannot read it 
without hearing the echoes of Genesis 1 and 2. Listen to these words. I saw a new heaven and a new earth. God created the heavens and the earth. It's a reflection, an echo of God's creation. There is in Revelation 21, this passage, God is, God is present on the earth. He comes among us. It's parallel with God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. In Genesis 1, there is light from the sun and the moon. In, in Revelation 21, God is the light. There is the river of life, the river of life. There is a tree of life, there is a tree of life. What am I saying to you? Our final destiny, brothers and sisters, shocking though it might be to some who may never even have thought about this before, is the new earth. That is our destiny. We have been made for this body and spirit. I'm going to experiment something. I have no idea what's going to happen here, but I want to try something. Hands up. Who wants to go to heaven when they die? Hands up if you want to go to heaven when you die. Hands up, hands up, hands up. Let me see you. Hands up if you want to go to heaven when you die. Uh, put your hands down. Hands up who want to go tonight. <laughs> well, there are a few who have had difficult weeks, I think. No, that's not fair. That's not fair. Isn't that interesting? If we want to go to heaven, why do we want to go tonight? Folks, we haven't been made for heaven. I want to say this to you. Don't misunderstand me. I'll explain in a moment. We have been made for work, for earth. God created us in his image and likeness and placed us on this planet, earth. And when he created the world, he said it was really, really good. He created us with this unique personality in his image and likeness, the ability to feel and to think and to make choices so that we could love him and worship him. But not in the narrow sense. Often when people talk about worship, what they really mean is singing. But to worship God is to present your body in its entirety to him. To live for him. To live in relationship with him. In the creation narrative, what you have is, is God giving to Adam and Eve what we call the cultural mandate the responsibility to replenish the earth, to bring it under subjection, to live in worshipful obedience to him so that all of their lives have lived as an act of worship in agriculture, in music, in theater, in science, in exploration, in analysis, in every dimension of our lives, we were created to worship God on the earth. So that the earth, that is why it's consistently described right throughout the creation narrative as good, becomes a cosmic temple where God dwells immediately, spontaneously, naturally with his people. You see, it is a place of fellowship and light because that's where God is present on the earth. And look at the big biblical picture. Of course, there is the Garden of Eden on the earth. The story of Noah and the covenant made with Noah was the preservation of the earth. When Abraham, the father of the faithful, was called and covenant was made with him, 
essential and at the heart of that covenant was the promise of earth, of a land flowing with milk and honey. The people of God, of course, at the great moment of the Exodus were taken out of Egypt with a promise that they would be given a land, a land flowing with milk and honey. And as they wander through the wilderness, they do with the expectation of this land that will be given to them on the earth. And you cannot read the Torah, the law of God, without seeing it as practical, ethical, detailed explanations of how we are to function on the earth. And of course, that period of exile when the people of God were sent into Babylon and all the great prophets of God came to promise the coming Messiah, the longing of their hearts was what? To go home to the land to the earth. Now, let me tell you what I said the last time I was preaching, that the word for earth and the word for land in Hebrew and in Greek is exactly the same word. When it says land, earth. When it says earth, it's land. And then Jesus comes as the one who is the great fulfillment of God's promises. And what does he say? In what is the manifesto of his kingdom, at the very heart of it, is he says, the meek will inherit what? The earth. What does he ask his disciples to pray? Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth, as it's done in heaven. As all authority is given to him in heaven and on earth, after he has accomplished our glorious redemption through his death and resurrection, he stands and he commands his disciples to go into all the world on planet earth and preach the gospel. What we have here, brothers and sisters, in Revelation 21 is the culmination of God's promises fulfilled through Jesus Christ for the recreation of what is to be our home, the new earth. That's the first thing I want you to see. The second is that on this earth, the curse, the curse that has been so destructive to everything and everyone that we are engaged with is removed. It doesn't require you to be a rocket scientist to discover that the world is not the way it's meant to be. We are in that lovely literary expression, east of Eden. We carry, as in the Adam, Adamic and Eve story, we, we carry this, this guilt because of our separation from the one who has made us for himself, and even worse, shame. I, I, feel, I say that because often the shame that people carry is much more oppressive than the guilt. For guilt, they feel they're personally responsible, but often the shame they carry is not simply because they have sinned, but someone has sinned against them in the broken world in which they live, and they carry that. It's an oppressive shame. How, how could you not see that if you think of Cliff Richard? Do you read, you know, what, how he felt, having been accused you know, for sexual impropriety and utter being exonerated. He describes himself, a man in his 70s who sought to remain faithful. The level of shame that he felt because of what people were saying against him, because of the reporting on the BBC, he just lay on the floor and wept uncontrollably. That is the shame. 
And of course, God says what the curse will be. He tells us in the Genesis narrative it will be the stress of work, it will be the pain of childbirth, and it will be the establishment of patriarchy. Women will seek after their husbands and they will rule over them. There is no subordination in the scriptures until the fall. And then men begin to feel that they have the right to dominate the weaker sex. It is part of the curse, you see, and with it slavery and murder and abuse and terrorism and a whole catalog of disaster that surrounds us. But here in Revelation 21, this is just glorious. The curse is lifted and the new Jerusalem comes down from heaven. And in it, and this is pictorial language, of course, but we know there will be no more evil. No more evil because the curse has been removed and the language that's used is there will be no more sea. Which, what, you know, when you read that, if you tried to read it literally, you would say, Port Stewart, Strand, that's gone. No, no. It's not Galway Bay and you know, the cliffs of Moore and all the beautiful things that we appreciate about the sea. This has been written in the context of the Middle East where the sea in terms of their thinking has always been identified with those things that are perverse and yet inexplicable. They know as we know that we are in the plight we are in not simply because of choices we have made or the choices of other people. Of course, we are sinners who have been sinned against. But the curse and the brokenness of this world in which we live is because of the forces of darkness, of principalities and powers that manifest themselves into the very systemic structures of the world in which we live so that we are held captive by times by inexplicable perversity, by monsters from the deep. And in the new Jerusalem... There is no more evil because there is no more sea. And there is no more fear because in this city, this place, you know, of commerce, of culture, of government, during the day, you know, in all cities, whether you're in Belfast or London or Dublin, it's relatively safe, but it's night. At night, it's not safe. In the old Jerusalem, it was not safe. That's why there were walls, and specifically, that's why there were gates. There were security forces. Uh, there were armed police. There were people who had to watch because it was, it was a fearful thing to be in the city at night. But in the New Jerusalem, <laughs> the gates are open wide. Day and night, there is nothing, nothing for which we need to be afraid and there are no more tears, no more evil, no more fear, no more tears. I cannot imagine in a gathering of this size how many tears have been shed by those who are assembled here. Tears of experiences that are 
almost beyond explanation, so deep and dark within your psyche that you find it difficult to articulate them even to those who are closest and dearest to you. The pain of loss, the death of children. I, I was a chaplain for most of my ministry in a children's hospital in Dublin in Crumlin. And we had, this was not known to the parents, but we had what we called the screaming room. Where after surgery and perhaps, you know, unexpectedly, the death of a child, the child would be carried in by a nurse and placed in the arms of of the mother or the father and they would literally scream overwhelming tears and you've had such pain you've lost people who are so close to you not least in death or, or even perhaps regrets of things you've done and you can't undo them no matter how hard you could try well folks in this new Jerusalem this is where we're going God himself the living and eternal God who created us will in this most intimate way wipe away every tear from our eyes because there is going to be no more death. No more death. If I was preaching now to an Afro-American audience as I have in America, people would be whooping and shouting and praising God at this day. So feel free, I want to tell you. Feel free. Wait, thank you. Feel free at any moment. There's got to be no more death. Yeah, and we are going to be death-proof. We're going to be death-proof. This is a lovely Frederick Bruckner expression. We're going to be death-proof, not because of the immortality of the soul, but because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. He has prepared for us and secured for us this glorious resurrection, a resurrected body. Now, I want to tell you, A resurrected body may seem weird to you. It was certainly to the Greek mind when the Apostle Paul was seeking to communicate about it. But we're going to share in a new creation. You see, it's not just that our souls or our spirits will continue. We're going to have bodies like Christ's resurrected body that's not subject to weakness or decay or death. It's like our old bodies, but it's different. It's a spiritual body. Now, I, I don't want you to get the notion that because it's a spiritual body, it's going to be immaterial. Oh, no. It's going to be so empowered by the Holy Spirit that in the words of C.S. Lewis, it's going to be more solid, more real, more substantial than we can ever imagine. Let me explain to you from the writings, actually, of St. Thomas Aquinas. He has extraordinary insights here, the medieval theologian. Uh, you know, I, I have moved house relatively recently in retirement, and I was picking up pictures of me in the past. And I was looking at them, and I thought to myself, my, you have changed over the years. You've seen old pictures of yourself, but you're the same person. You see, we're all in a state of flux. Our entire physical kit changes every seven years The atoms and molecules of our body, they change. In fact, we become totally different every 
10 years, but we are the same person and God will take us from the dust of the earth and he will create this brand new body not subject to death. No more evil, no more fear, no more tears, no more death. At this point, John simply describes the new Jerusalem. It is, it is just breathtaking. It is simply magnificent, this bride who has come down. It's, it's you know, in the words of the late Terry Wogan, it's ginormous. It's humongous. The size and description that you find in Revelation 21. In fact, it's specifically the same size of the Holy Roman Empire to demonstrate, hey, you Caesar, you Emperor Domitian, you're not in charge here. The Lord Jesus Christ is in charge, and it is carefully measured. There are 12 gates representing the 12 tribes and the 12 apostles. It is ornate. Precious jewels, jasper, gold, sapphire. It is magnificent. I don't know how many of you have visited the cathedrals, great cathedrals throughout Europe, like um, Notre Dame or Salisbury or Reims or even Westminster Abbey, but they're all designed for the same purpose. They are, of course, large. They are measured. They're ornate, but they're meant to evoke something. It's meant to create a feeling a response. What, what Steve Stock, Stockman, Stocky as I call him, my friend, calls the great, incredible, wow. It's this extraordinary sense of the transcendence of God. Here is the new Jerusalem with a curse removed. No more evil, no more fear, no more tears, no more death. Simply magnificent. And thirdly, salvation is complete. Our salvation secured by Jesus Christ is complete. It's called a new heaven and a new earth. Now, what, what, what does John mean by new? He, he could have chosen the word neos, which means you have never seen anything like this before. This is so new. But instead, he chooses the word kainos which means it has continuity with the world that we are familiar with. But this is a radical renewal. This is, if you like, paradise restored. Because Jesus had already spoken of this in Matthew 19. He talked about the day when the Son of Man would come and there would be the palingenesis, the renewal of all things. Peter spoke about it in Acts 3. Heaven must receive Jesus until the time comes for God to restore everything as he promised long ago through his holy prophets. And in Ephesians, the times will reach their fulfillment to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Jesus Christ. This is salvation complete in fulfillment of the vision given to the prophet Isaiah when he said, See, I will create new heavens and a new earth. The former things will not be remembered, nor will they come to mind, but be glad and rejoice forever in what I will create, for I will create Jerusalem to be a delight and its people a joy. It is what is being described here is the cosmic salvation that has been secured through Jesus Christ. But let me say this to you as gently and lovingly as I can. 
based upon the witness of Scripture that even though it is so comprehensive, it is so universal that not everyone is going to share in this. Not everyone. And perhaps not everyone who was here tonight. Listen to these solemn words. But the cowardly, the unbelieving, the vile, the murderers, the sexually immoral, those who practice magic arts, the idolaters, and all liars, their place will be in the fiery lake of burning sulfur. This is the second death. Two groups of people who are excluded from this quite specifically are the cowards and the liars. The cowards, of course, are those who who will not take up the cross. They will not fulfill the requirements of kingdom ministry. And the liars are those who have heard the lie who have believed the lie and have lived the lie that they are the masters of their fate, that they are the captains of their soul. And whether it comes to sexuality or money or relationships, they are in charge and they will not share in this the salvation of God but this complete salvation is, is wonderful. It's described in these terms, and I'll be brief on this. When we experience the fullness of God's salvation, the whole rationale of our being created to love and to be loved will be perfected. And this is true whether we are single or married, or whatever level of intimacy we have experienced. Because the New Jerusalem, you see, is a bride who is adorned for her husband, not adorned for the wedding day so much, but prepared for intimacy. Prepared to know and to be known. It's, it's the language, I have to tell you, of sexuality. Often in the language of scripture, the language of sexuality and spirituality are very closely interwoven. We have been made for love at this level of intimacy. And we will experience it. Not, we are told, for the purposes of reproduction. Jesus is quite clear about that. But we will experience a level of physicality, relational and emotional intimacy of love that we have never known before with God himself. I don't know whether this is just a man thing. This is my excuse with Karis and I when we were discussing this, but she will tell me, you know, maybe 20 times a day, you are not listening. You are not listening. Guys, have you heard this? You are not listening. And when she begins to bear her heart to me with something that she's struggling with, where she wants me just to identify with her, to empathize, to demonstrate that I'm actually hearing what she is saying, within seconds I am prescribing a solution to her problem. You know where I am, guys? Well, let me tell you, 
in the new creation, not only with God, but with each other, we will be perfect in our intimacy. We will be able to enter into the garden of God and the garden of those whom we love, and we will identify and hear and respond and listen because the bride has been perfectly adorned for her husband. And there will be in this complete salvation utter satisfaction. Now, I don't want to sound like a grumpy old man, which I can be, but, but I can complain sometimes that things are not the way they used to be, you know. All this noise and worship, get on with it, you know. And people thinking, you know, they're up and down and they're shouting, you know, really. That's an age thing. Forgive me. Forgive me. But we also live in a culture that has created an environment where we are never satisfied. Never, ever, ever satisfied. That's capitalism, you see. It's been designed specially to tell you that you need something new. You need something more. And you need to buy it. That's how the economy functions. So whatever you have, it may be okay now, but you need a new one. You need a new car. You need a new garden. You need what? You need a new home. You need, uh, you know, new clothes. New is the word. And to have this new thing, and when you have it, you'll be so satisfied and so fulfilled, you have to spend money to get it. And you make your bucket list, don't you, as you vote retirement? Well, I've done. You make your bucket list. And when you've had this new experience and you've had this new holiday, then you will be content. Let me tell you, you will not be. We are never, ever satisfied. But in the new Jerusalem, we will be. Because we have been made for the ultimate trip which is fellowship with God. And in the New Jerusalem, there is the river of life flowing through the city. It's a river whose streams make glad the city of God. You see, it's the picture of Ezekiel, the picture of the river flowing from the house of God, first up to his ankles, then his knees, then his legs, and then he cannot stand in it. It's above all else, it's, it's the water that Jesus speaks of when he talks to the woman of Samaria. If you drink of this water, if you drink of the water that I give you, you will never, ever thirst again. And it is flowing through the river of God. It is flowing through the new Jerusalem. You see, well, at that time, <laughs> we will never be unfulfilled. We will never be dissatisfied. We will never feel we need more. Isn't that amazing? And when salvation is complete, all interracial, interethnic, intertribal conflict will be no more. Do you know why? Because the leaves of the tree of life will be for the healing of the nations, including the nation of Ireland. And this land will come with all the others, north and south, British, Irish, 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 whatever you want. We're all going to come, and we will give allegiance. It's the wonderful, wonderful fulfillment of the picture of Isaiah 60, where 
the kings arrive in triumphal procession bringing their riches, not just their economic resources, but the cultural inheritance of all the nations. They come to this busy, bustling city and they place all their cultural riches on parade. Listen to this. The herds of camels will come from Midian and Ephah. The people from Sheba will come bearing gold and incense. Keter's flocks, doves flying along the clouds, ships of Tarshish with their gold and silver. They're coming and what are the Irish going to bring? Well, you know, I was privileged to minister until a few years ago in a church that had 27 nationalities from every Every continent of the world except the Antarctic, we did not have penguins. We had people from Brazil and Argentina, from various African nations, from Eastern Europe, from South Korea, from Hong Kong. We had them from India. It was just an amazing community of people. And there were a number of occasions we had what we call a taste of five continents where everybody brought their food from all those different nationalities and we just had such a party Well, of course, this is the vision of of the nations healed. No longer in conflict with each other and no longer in conflict with God. They come in allegiance and they bring their cultural riches. The Ulsterman will bring his humor. Oh, yes, it's high talent. They'll come. They'll bring their creativity and their music. We'll bring our poetry and scientific knowledge will bring our skills and our hospitality. And sometimes, you know, I have seen a little of what it's going to be like. I I, I was so privileged to watch this. It was just extraordinary in Belfast, in the Europa Hotel, where on the stage there stood an orange man with an orange drum. And I know about lambic drums. And he began to beat out the rhythm of the orange drum. And from the two sides to the rhythm of the drum came the Irish dancers, the Celtic dancers dancing to the orange rhythm. For me, folks, that is a foretaste of all the riches that we have in our cultures to bring them into the new Jerusalem in this new world that has been created for us. Let me tell you just briefly before I turn to, before I close. The kingdom has already come. You know that. Because the king has come. We, we are simply living in expectation of what will be in terms of the new earth. We are to live now as the children of a new day, of a new age, of the children of the age which is to come. The greatest thing about this new Jerusalem, for me more than any other, is at the center, the primary focus, is the living God and the Lamb who has secured our redemption. This is how it's described. John says, I did not see a temple in the city because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. You see, God is in the new Jerusalem, in in the new heavens and in the new earth. He's just simply 
everywhere. He is immediate. He is accessible. He is present. There is no temple. It's why I said when God created the heavens and the earth, he created it as a cosmic temple in which he would immediately relate to those he had created in his image. That's why he created them the way he did in his image and likeness. But the fall, our disobedience, destroyed that, and he could no longer come close to us. We would be consumed by the fire of his presence. And what you find throughout the whole witness of Scripture is what Tom Wright calls the titanic struggle in order for salvation to be secured. Do you remember the moment when when Moses came down from Mount Sinai and he was so shocked to discover that they had created this idol, this, this golden calf... And, and God said he would no longer go with them. And Moses went as an intercessor and he pleaded with the living God, please go with us. It is in your going with us that makes us a unique people upon the face of the earth. And the only way it was possible was for them to create a tabernacle. Clearly prescribed, veil after veil after veil after veil would separate them from the Holy of Holies, from the inner sanctum. And only on one day a year, on the Day of Atonement, could the great high priest go in with a rope around his leg in case he collapsed. Because no one else could enter. On this one day, they could enter the temple of God. Well, of course, you know that God's presence went with them the cloud by day, the pillar of fire by night, until eventually they came to the promised land. And there, instead of a mobile tabernacle, there was the permanent temple. It was the place of God's presence and the execution of his government until Jesus came. And the word became flesh and tabernacled among us. He described himself as the temple. The temple will be destroyed, he said. You remember, to the shock of the Pharisees and rebuilt in three days. They couldn't grasp what he was saying. He told his own people that they would be the temple of the Holy Spirit. Jesus Christ, you see, as the temple of God, he was our, he was our priest. He was our sacrifice. So that now we are the temple of the Holy Spirit, even as we assemble in this, in this tent. God is in his holy temple because we have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. We've come to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly, to the church of the firstborn whose names are written in heaven. You have come to God, the judge of all, to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel, until we come to the new Jerusalem. And there is no temple. Let me tell you personally how important this is to me. I, you know, I've been a pastor all my life and I've got the impression and create the image of being this man of God 
I, I want to tell you, I have struggled in my relationship with God throughout my entire life. I, I, God is my Lord and Savior in Jesus Christ. I know all of that. And I've had moments of extraordinary intimacy with him. But this has never been easy for me. Never, never. And perhaps it's never been easy for you. I, I can't tell you how many times I've had you know, periods of no quiet time at all. I, I've just struggled. I, I've, I've had spiritual directors. I've gone on retreats, you know. I've tried all these spiritual disciplines. I've become part of the Northumbria community. I've even started reading the Church of Ireland prayer book, for goodness sake. <laughs> I've done all these things because I long to know him. I long to know him and be with him. And in the new Jerusalem, there will be no more temple, no more quiet times, no more disciplines, no more spiritual directors, no more sermons, folks, no more preaching. We will be forever in the presence of the living God who has loved us with an everlasting love and redeemed us through his Son. Let, let me say, I, I need to say this. Folks, you don't want to miss this. You don't want to miss this. When I say that, um, that the cowards and the liars are not to be there, we're not talking about people who are afraid or have made failures or, or have heard the lies of Satan and at times have obeyed them. We're talking about a lifestyle. We're talking about a demeanor. We're talking about people who live in defiance of God. They cannot participate in this. I want you to have an opportunity this evening to respond and say, I want this, I want this desperately. Because deep in my soul, I know I've been made for this. I'm going to invite us to pray just now. Will we, can we just bow in prayer? I'm not finished, by the way, but we're just going to pray. I have to tell you, I'm not really into altar calls. It's not part of my tradition. I'm so reformed, I can hardly raise my fingers, never mind raise my hands. But I want you to have an opportunity tonight. If God has spoken to you and, you, and, he say, and, he, and, and, and he's prompting you, and you, and you really want this. You want to follow Jesus Christ. You know what he's done for you. You don't want to be a coward. You don't want to be a liar. You don't want to believe what Satan has said to you over the years. And tonight is the night when you want to say, I'm going for this. I'm going for this. Well, all I want you to do just now, while everybody has their eyes closed, I would not embarrass you. I just want you to stand wherever you are. I just want you to stand and say, yep, 
this is for me. This is for me. God bless you. Just remain with your eyes closed. You see the center of the new Jerusalem, of the new heavens and the new earth, is the living God, the Lord Almighty and the Lamb who was slain, the one who's brought us home, the one who removed the curse, the one who has completed our salvation. And we will see his face. It's what's called the beatic vision. Our names, his name will be on our foreheads. You see, John didn't just see visions, but he heard. He heard something. He heard music. He heard singing. He heard choirs. He heard instruments that evoked within him a sense of ecstasy and infinity and inexpressible love for the one who had done all this for him. The one who had brought him home, who had lifted the curse, who had saved him from sin and death and hell. The one who has secured for us this glorious salvation the Lion of Judah, the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end, the Son of God, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, Messiah, Jehovah, the Prince of Peace, the Son of Man, the Seed of Abraham, the Lamb who is seated on the throne, living and eternal God, we come before you now and we assemble in this communion of saints with 10,000 times 10,000, with multitudes that no man can number, with the church triumphant we come tonight and we say blessing and honor and glory and power be unto him who sits upon the throne and to the Lamb forever and forever. And the people of God said... Amen. And they shouted, Hallelujah.